everyone. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Jonathan Chen. I'm just so glad that you can join me in a new series called The Life of David and Me. But before we begin this new series, let me just show you a video clip because why? That's what we customarily do in the beginning of each sermon. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. Sit down. Two weeks pay. Two weeks severance. What's this? All-purpose loan. Now you got a lot of money, Lee. What you gonna do? I guess a better. I tell you what you do. Take April on the town. Buy her nice clothes. Check into big hotel. Have lots of sex. Have food brought up to you in bed. Drink champagne and whiskey. Now money all gone. April be gone too, like money. You come back to me. I put you back in kitchen, wash dishes to pay back loan. By that time, you're no longer young, you're no longer handsome, you're nothing but a dishwasher. That's one choice. There are others. Like what? They say education is good. Hmm, I've heard that. Me, personally, I hope you go with April. I can always use a good dishwasher. Well, welcome back. Were there any moments in your life that you felt you were unqualified for the role that was given to you? Whether it be in your job, as a volunteer, in your family, or just merely being human, that you hear these voices telling you that you're a fraud, you're lying to yourself, and that you don't deserve the position you are in. For those who have experienced or are experiencing this, what were some of the consequences or results of giving into these voices, these lies? Was it missed opportunities? Was it damaged relationships? Were there any jealousy, distrust, the need for affirmation from your loved ones, pressure to please people? And for those Christians out there who are watching or listening to this, when we succumb to what these things call our inferiority lies, what were the consequences? What were the consequences for us Christians who believe in Jesus and want to follow Jesus Christ? Are these inferiority lies, when we succumb to these inferiority lies, do we disobey God, distrust God, or failure to answer his call? See, as we begin our series on the life of David, we need to start with his predecessor, his name is Saul. Why? Because something happened with Saul that led to the appointment of David. See, what happened to Saul that led God to appoint David even while Saul was still Israel's king? What happened to him that led God and Samuel with this response in verse 1 of chapter 16? Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask 
with olive oil and go to Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse who lives there for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. You have mourned long enough for Saul, Samuel. What led to Samuel in such distress and depression and in a life of mourning for so long? What did Saul do? Well, I want to offer you my argument for today. David's story existed because Saul allowed the inferiority lie to get the best of him. Instead of seeing who God made him to be and trusting God, Saul believed in the inferiority lie, believing that he was inadequate, he believed that he was irrelevant and insignificant, and what's worse, he believed that he was inferior. Let's begin with Saul's story so that we understand why David's story even began with two interesting bookends that the writer purposely placed to tell us that Saul's story played a very important role in David's beginnings. And here they are. The first one, the first bookend, begins in the beginning in chapter 9, verse 21. It goes like this. Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. And my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me, Samuel? Now let's blast over to the next bookend, the end of this entire section. In verse 11, chapter 16. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, the smallest, Jesus, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Smallest, youngest. Did you catch those two words in those two bookends? Smallest and youngest. See, the same Hebrew word was used for these two words. And this word is katan, katan, which means not only youngest and smallest in terms of age and physique, but also insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, and inferior. So Katan encompasses not just the physical and the age aspects of being small and young, but also insignificant, unimportant, irrelevant, and inferior. Saul saw himself and his tribe that he belonged to as Katan, because Benjamin was the smallest tribe in all of Israel. And coincidentally, if you blast over to the history into Jacob's time, Benjamin was the youngest of all the sons. While Jesse, David's father, saw David as Katan due to his small physique and also being the youngest. Jesse saw David as insignificant, unimportant, unimportant, irrelevant, and inferior. So for Katan to be the bookends of the chapter 9, 21, all the way to chapter 16, verse 11, everything we read in the middle has to do with Katan, i.e., Katan provides the overarching theme in reading these passages in between these bookends, which includes the life of Saul and the beginnings of David. So how does Katan affected Saul, which led to David's appointment as the next king? When Samuel approached Saul in chapter 9 and tells him that God has chosen him to be the first king of Israel, Saul immediately gave us the reader a glimpse of who he was, a man who believed in the inferiority lie. Instead of responding with humility and trust in God, 
What does Saul do? He immediately doubted Samuel and God because he was convinced that he came from an inferior tribe that he himself didn't even want to associate with or belong. Notice how quickly Saul responded. This Saul, this man, was already loathing that he belonged to this pathetic tribe. He was filled with regret. So he's basically telling Samuel, look, don't patronize me or mock me. Come on, look at me. Look at who I belong to. God knew his heart and Samuel did too. However, did God and Samuel give up on Saul? No. Instead, they continued to love Saul and encouraged him with this in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, quote, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Samuel told Saul that the Lord has appointed him and that the Lord knows what he's doing. Since if Israel is the Lord's special possession, he will indeed guarantee it to empower Saul to take care of his special possession. He wouldn't just give it to anyone to take care of his special possession if he didn't know what he was doing. And if Israel was God's special possession and Saul belongs to Israel, well, guess what, Saul? You too is God's special possession as well. This verse alone, this quote alone, should have wiped every single doubt in Saul's mind and enable him to snap out of his inferiority lie. But did it? The author didn't mention anything just yet, for God continued to show that he was with Saul by doing this. Found in chapter 10, verse 9. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? And one of those standing there said, Can anyone become a prophet no matter who his father is? So that is the origin of the saying, is Saul, even Saul a prophet? In other words, the observers were saying, we know this guy. How did this happen? Why did, how, did, how on earth did he change 180 degrees and become so spiritual all of a sudden? The answer is this. God demonstrated to Saul that God can do mighty things, regardless what tribe or ancestry Saul came from as evidenced by the author, saying that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and even the folks who knew his family well were astonished that Saul can do such spiritual things, even though he's not from the spiritual ancestral line, like Levi. Was this enough to prove to Saul to see past this inferiority lie and trust and obey God? That's the question. Can Saul see past his belief that he was not Catan, and trust God. To trust that God can use anyone, including those who may think they're Catan. Let's see what Saul does in chapter 10, verse 21. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? 
And the Lord replied, he is hiding among the baggage. So they found him and brought him out. And he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. What did Saul do after all the demonstrations of God's power upon him? He was hiding among the baggage. Despite being told that by God that he was God's special possession to take care of Israel, who is also his special possession, despite witnessing the power of God inside of his body that many of us, you and I Christians today, all yearn for, despite witnessing how God even controlled the outcome of the casting of lots, Saul hid behind luggage. And remember, this guy was freakishly tall. Hiding behind luggage would be a tough thing to do. Think about it. Would Dwayne Johnson be able to hide behind luggage? No. So Saul, being similar in physique like Dwayne Johnson, hid behind luggage? Again, Saul is buying into the inferiority lie and not believing in God's words. But God pursued. God continues to encourage Saul while providing him with another opportunity. In verse 25 in chapter 10, then Samuel told the people what the rights and duties of a king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people home again. When Saul returned to his home at Gibeah, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But there were some scoundrels who complained, how can this man save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts. But Saul ignored him. God provided Saul with godly people quote, whose hearts God had touched. Godly people to encourage Saul to trust and obey God. Like us today, Christians who need encouragement from our fellow Christians and sometimes need reminders from our Christian community of who we are, that we can overcome the inferiority lie. So does Saul. He too needs godly people to surround him to get over that inferiority lie. But unfortunately, Saul has done nothing to show that he trusted God as evidenced by the scoundrels who rightfully complain, how can this man save us? I.e., how can this man save us in a godly way when he couldn't even trust God enough to not hide behind the luggage? God concluded with one last demonstration to Saul of his power. Verse 6 in chapter 11. Then the spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul again and became very angry. He, Saul, became very angry. See, what led to this? Well, Saul was doing chores, washing dishes, vacuuming the floor, you know, the contemporary chores that back then he was just taking care of oxen. But you know what I mean. He was just doing chores. What was going on when he was doing chores? Well, the Ammonites were attacking Israel and forcing the Israel tribe of Jabesh Gilead to gouge out their right eyeballs. All right, here we have it. The newly appointed king of Israel, God-appointed king. He sees this happening to God's special possession. And what does he do? He stays home and washes dishes and do chores. What the heck? So one last time. God demonstrates to Saul his power. God's spirit basically kicked Saul in the butt and got him going. Saul was so entrenched with his inferiority lie that he didn't even bother to do anything about what was going on around him. 
He didn't take up his role, nor was he even motivated to do so. The scoundrels were right. How can this man possibly save us? Because he ain't done nothing but care about himself and shirking his responsibilities. So God, one last time, prove to Saul that he will be with him as long as Saul trusts and obey God. Did he after this? Well, before the author responds to that question, the author needs to remind us of God's covenant that has always been around since Genesis. And that's reiterated in chapter 12. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be as heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors. Don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You have certainly done wrong, but make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name, for it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. Israel is God's special possession. He will not abandon his people. It is only when his people abandon him that there will be this separation. God will no longer protect them, and they will experience the wrath of his judgment to the violent oppression from the foreign nations, namely the Philistines during Saul's time. That's the covenant. That's been the covenant since Genesis. That's the deal that was made long ago between humanity and God. Trust and obey God. They will be great. Flourish. Don't trust and obey God. You're screwed. All of God's people said, okay, that's the deal. Did Saul uphold the deal? Nope. Let's take a look at chapter 13, verse 13. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. What happened in chapter 13 that resulted in Saul losing his kingship? Saul again was so entrenched with his inferiority lie that he would rather please his soldiers than trust and obey God. He was supposed to wait for Samuel, but instead thinking that he's going to lose his soldiers, loyalty, or his reputation is going to be tarnished, he immediately jumped the gun and made sacrifices using the sacrifices as merely a lucky charm as opposed to worshiping God. He basically used these sacrifices to ensure his reputation and to ensure that the soldiers were loyal to him as opposed to worshiping God. It was like a lucky charm, a happy, joy, lucky demonstration. Was that the only time that Saul goofed and succumbed to his own inferiority lie? His son, Jonathan, exposed some more. In verse 6, chapter 14, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his arm bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. See, instead of leading the charge, Saul was hiding while his son Jonathan and his assistant went into battle against the Philistines. Two against a whole army. Where's Saul in all this? Asleep and hiding. Was that all? Was that the, only, was the, was that the second time and only time that Saul screwed up? Nope. Chapter 14, verse 42. Then Saul said, now cast lots again and choose between me and Jonathan. And Jonathan was shown to be the guilty one. Tell me what you have done. Saul demanded of Jonathan. I tasted a little honey, Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the, on the end of my stick. 
Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan, Saul said, you must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Dude, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from him. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched, for God helped him to do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Okay, some context here. What happened that led to this? So Saul commanded his soldiers to not eat anything until they defeated the Philistines and placed a curse on his soldiers saying that if you do, I'll kill you. So finish off the Philistines first before you can eat anything. What kind of command is that? Exactly. It's dumb. It's stupid. But Saul did that just to exert his power to ensure that he still has power. That's a man that really has succumbed to his inferiority lie. Jonathan thought this was also a dumb command as well. So he told his soldiers, uh, when he looked at the honey, the soldiers said, oh, don't, don't eat that, don't eat that. But Jonathan says, that's stupid. All of you are hungry and weak. We can't chase down the Philistines hungry and weak. We need food. So instead, Jonathan saw the honey and he ate some. And he and the soldiers uh, ate some as well and made some sacrifices and ate some of the livestock in order to, hey, get fed. So knowing that the command was dumb, Saul also said, oh, he, he, he realized that his command was dumb. But instead of having the courage to admit his mistakes of making this dumb command, because he was so succumbed to his inferiority lie, he tried to save face by willingly executing his own son. So instead of admitting that he made a dumb command to the rest of the soldiers and to Jonathan himself, he was willing to kill his own son just to save his own face. If it wasn't for the people to knock some sense into him, he would have done it. See, the inferiority lie can truly cloud our judgment and, to, and cloud us to do the right thing. Instead of doing the right thing, we, just like Saul, would succumb to just saving face or trying to protect our reputation by doing the wrong thing. And rather than looking at the truth and to see who God has really appointed him and appointed us to be and to do, we fall prey to Katan. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 15. One day, Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of the Lord, heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Fast forward. Saul and his men spared Agag's life. What did, what did God tell him to do? Annihilate everything. But what does Saul do? Spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything. In fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command no matter how many times we tried. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Karma to set up a monument to himself. 
Then he went on to give up. What other things are we tempted to do when we give in to our inferiority lie? We try to be a people pleaser as opposed to obeying God. God commanded Saul to wipe out everything. Instead, Saul thought this would be a wonderful political opportunity to gain some popularity points by keeping the best for his soldiers. Not only that, if you read this passage, he lied to Samuel, saying that he kept these to sacrifice to the Lord. Mm -mm. He's so entrenched with the inferiority lie that he did the biggest no-no of them all. He built a monument to himself, i.e. a monument to compensate his inferiority lie. No wonder Samuel cried out to the Lord all night. How can Saul, after so many times of witnessing God's power, would not and could not get out of his inferiority lie? Why does Saul continually choose to compensate his inferiority and believe in the inferiority that he is inferior as opposed to overcoming it by trusting and obeying God? Samuel approaches Saul again one last time and with one last statement using the word katan. It's found in verse 17. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, katan, although you may think that you are inferior, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul says to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions in the Lord's command for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Saul, he continues to think that he's Katan. And because of that, the Lord has rejected him as king. He continues to try to compensate, please people, and do what people expected him to do. But really, he should have been more focused on obeying God. His choice is now his reaping. He's reaping his consequences. And now, after that whole story of Saul, after all these opportunities and chances that God has given him to overcome his inferior, inferiority lie, we end up with chapter 16, the beginnings of of David. Here we go. Chapter 16, verse 6. When Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesus told his, uh, then Jesse told his son, Abinab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the Katan, the youngest. Jesse replied, but he's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with oil. 
and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Jesse saw David the same way as Saul saw himself and his tribe. Katan, small, insignificant, irrelevant, inferior. We will see how David contrasts with Saul in our upcoming journey through his life, but today the author wanted us to focus on how believing in the inferior lie can be detrimental to us in trusting and obeying God. Instead of obedience and submission, as Samuel says, Saul continued to compensate for his inferiority lie. Saul was so entrenched in this lie that he completely ignored all of God's demonstrations of his power in Saul physically and spiritually. He completely ignored them. Saul had tangible experience of God's power that we all desire. And despite all those demonstrations, Saul's judgment, decision-making, and the way he treated his own son was clouded by his inferiority lie. So how about us today? Are we susceptible to the inferiority lie? You know, the voices in our heads telling us that we are worthless, that, hey, you, do not, you did not deserve this position. You did not deserve God's forgiveness. You did not deserve God's grace. And you did not deserve these blessings. You do not even deserve this job. Do we have that? Do we have those voices telling us these inferiority lies? Have we convinced ourselves that we are not suitable for the roles that God has placed us in? Well, let me reiterate the words of Samuel to you. You are God's special possession. He has placed you in this time and space for a purpose, and he makes no mistakes. And also, he wastes nothing. And if you allow him, he will demonstrate his power in you through the power of his spirit, as long as you trust and obey him. Surround yourself with godly people. Allow God to surround you with godly people. Don't hide away or ignore them. Receive them and welcome them into your lives so that you can defeat the lie of inferiority. For God loves you. And again, he sees you as his special possession. He will never let you go unless you let him go. Amen. Thank you.